Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 139. In the whole run of this podcast, any time that I've been worried about light content, a quiet week, all of a sudden, mana drops from the heavens. We have a brand new Packer defensive coordinator. Let's all welcome him by saying Fire Halfley. Hashtag Fire Halfley. Jeff Halfley, the former Boston College head coach, former defensive coordinator for Ohio State, defensive backs coach in the NFL for many years. He is the new Packer defensive coordinator. A relative unknown and seemingly out of left field when that news dropped on Wednesday. The more you read about him, though, the more you like. We'll get into that. We also had huge Brewer news. We'll probably lead off there. Corbin Burns traded to Baltimore late last night. couple of prospects and a pick coming back. This is in line with what we thought they should be doing months ago, but then you sign Reese Hoskins and you come to terms on these arguments arbitration deals look like they were maybe going to try to win this year I'm sure they'll tell you they still are trying to win this year but this move would go the opposite way now do they trade Adamas and go the original right we thought they'd go it's been an odd odd offseason for Matt Arnold and the Brewers we'll talk about that trade and what is coming back and what the rotation looks like now not great We will go over some college hoops. Tough one for the Badgers, but we're inching closer to March Madness. These games are getting more entertaining. Are they knocking on the door of still a one or two seed? Not after last night, maybe, but they're rising the ranks. Marquette is hot, and we'll talk about two games into the Doc Rivers era. 0-2 right now for the Bucs as they look to spin things around on Saturday. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. Yes! The Brewers win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's a interception, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. Backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. And a pinnacle foul throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Hey, happy Groundhog. Day to everybody out there. Okay, campers, rise and shine, and don't forget your booties, because it's cold out there. Today. It's cold out there every day. What is this, Miami Beach? Uh, I'm hardly. Yeah, the B93 morning show this morning was essentially just me splicing in a clip of Groundhog Day at the beginning of and end of every break. It was an expensive morning show. There's a lot of money in rights and licensing that we paid this morning. I'm sure our budgeting department's going to be very happy about that. What is this, 17 Groundhog Day clips? You played one-third of the movie Groundhog Day on the morning show? That might be the bill they're looking to pay. That invoice will be coming in hot from Paramount Pictures. It is Groundhog Day. I didn't realize this. We did some Groundhog Day trivia this morning. Groundhog Day has its roots in Germany, which a lot of stuff does. Germany, France, all the old European countries. A lot of this stuff, though, does go back to Germany. If only they hadn't tried to take over the world a couple times, we'd have a much fonder vision. It is tracing its origins back to Germany, though, and the Christian holiday of Candlemas. I had never heard of that. C-A-N-D-L-E-M-A-S. I would not recommend going on Wikipedia and reading about Candlemas. It is a little weird, but you have to know... It was the early 13th or 14th century when this stuff was going down. That seemed to be the beginning of it, and then it evolved as a way to predict whether or not winter was going to continue or spring was coming. And initially, before the groundhog got involved in Germany, it was a badger that was looked to to predict the weather. A much more ornery animal, unless we're talking about Jimmy the Groundhog in Sun Prairie, which remains one of my favorite still photos maybe ever. I think it was 2014 or 2015, the Groundhog in Sun Prairie, which I think is the go-to Groundhog in the state of Wisconsin, and one of the more popular Groundhogs, not the legend status of Punxsutawney Phil, never going to get quite that high up there. He is the GOAT and will always be. 
But Jimmy the Groundhog, the Sun Prairie Groundhog, I think is the most popular groundhog in the state of Wisconsin. It must have been 2014 or 2015 when the mayor of Sun Prairie at the time was celebrating Groundhog Day and they got Jimmy out of his cage and they were holding him up toward the mayor and he was all dressed up in his top hat and his monocle and whatever different garb they had to wear for Groundhog Day, dressed up like Mr. Peanut on Groundhog Day. And the mayor, for some reason, decided for the optics of it, for the theatrics of it, he was going to lean in and Jimmy was going to kind of whisper to him, oh, okay, what are you going to tell me about winter? And you could just tell, even on video, Jimmy the Groundhog was waiting for this moment. Yeah, come a little closer. Come on in here. I got something to tell you. I'm going to tell you about the weather here in a second. Just why don't you come on in here and I'm going to bite your ear. He just clamps down on his ear like a dog on a ham bone. And the still picture of the moment that Jimmy the Groundhog bites onto this mayor's earlobe and the mayor realizes what is happening, the look on both of their faces and seeing his mouth clamped on earlobe is one of the funniest pictures I think I've ever seen. And then remember, there were stories about Jimmy the Groundhog well after that where he escaped at one point. They had to find him. I don't know. He was he was the bad boy of the Groundhog world. He was like Costanza in that Seinfeld episode where Lane's friend or coworker thinks he's the bad boy. Driving his dad's car, he's got the Yankee jacket on and the jeans rolled up, smoking a Marbred Jimmy the Groundhog. One of my favorite pictures of all time. Happy Groundhog Day to all of those out there today. Also, just going back to last Friday's podcast where we talked about some listenership. Hey, by the way, I see more people had some ratings and reviews on Spotify. We appreciate that and on Apple as well. If you can keep doing that, if you have not done that, just give us a quick out of five star rating. That helps. Whatever the star is, it helps. It helps the algorithm. It gets attention. And then more and more people see the podcast, which might be a good or a bad thing, depending on your perspective. But we talked on Friday about how Des Moines, Iowa has become this random hamlet for the Strange Brew podcast. It is and was and now is still on Monday and today the third biggest market that we have that listens to this podcast. Genuinely, I have to know why. So here is my email. If you are listening in Des Moines, Iowa, should I give you the hotmail burner that I started after college or should we give you the work email? It doesn't matter. The hotmail burner is easier, but I'll, I'll give you the work email. The work email used to be so easy. You know what my work email used to be? My name is John, by the way. I've been told I need to do that more, too. Because I think I think most of the people that listen to this are probably friends of mine from days gone by or B93 listeners that know who I am. I guess there are people that are checking in that have no idea what my name is. My name is John. How are you doing? And it's J-O-N, Jonathan. My mom will be happy I added that. John, J-O-N. So when I started working at B93 in Sheboygan, The emails were just your name at whatever station you worked for. John at B93radio.com. It does not get any easier than that when you're delivering it on the air or you want somebody to email you or you can email a request or whatever. It rolls off the tongue. John, J-O-N, three letters at B93radio.com. Then about eight or nine years ago, we flipped over to Gmail like everybody did, and we all hailed Gmail, and we all had to bow at the foot, bow at the pedestal of Gmail. But that meant we had to go to a more structured email format. So now my email is now john.hensler, my full name, john.hensler, at M as in mom, mwcradio.com. That stands for Midwest Communications. Now tell me how easy that is to say on the air when you want somebody to maybe email you. Just give me an email at john, that's J-O-N dot Hensler, H-E-N-S-E-L-E-R, at M as in mom, WCRadio.com. Boy, that just is an easy break right there, isn't it? John at B93Radio.com. Bring it back. But that is my email. And genuinely, I want to hear from somebody in Des Moines, Iowa, and I just want to find out how you found the podcast. Do I know you? Am I related to you somehow? Long lost cousin? I don't know. I need to know more about how this number keeps growing in Des Moines. John, J-O-N dot Hensler, H-E-N-S-E, there's an E in there, L-E-R, at mwcradio.com. Somebody just give me a two-sentence email today from Des Moines and let me know what's going on in Des Moines. Shout out Iowa again. Okay, let's hop into it. Housekeeping done. Good housekeeping done. Should we start with Corbin Burns? We'll do Corbin, and then we'll get into the Packer defensive coordinator, college hoops, and we'll wrap up on the Bucks. They finally make the Corbin Burns trade, but it just continues to confound me with what's going on this offseason. Remember, all the way back at the end of the year, We said at that point there were two options. We did the whole podcast with my delusions of grandeur where we talked about, oh, we could go all in like 2011. Even though Burns and Woodruff and Adamas are all entering the final year of their deal, 
And the economics of baseball dictate that a small market team with a not big payroll should cash in on these guys in terms of prospects because you know you're not going to sign them long term. I presented the alternative timeline in the multiverse of you go all in. You keep all these guys. You add two legitimate middle-of-the-order bats, spend some money, and try to really win one in 2024-25 or 2024. And then the Woodruff injury came. And that, to me, as we've talked about, was kind of the domino that said, okay, that's not going to happen. In this theoretical world of going for it, you need that rotation. You need a fully healthy Woodruff or at least a reasonable expectation that he was going to be back at some point in June or before the trade deadline. You needed a healthy Woodruff, a healthy Burns, and a healthy Peralta. That was the basis for this whole thing. And then could you add some bats? And they end up actually adding one of the two bats that we would have wanted. But when Woodruff got hurt and then you were just caught in this weird spot where You didn't feel comfortable giving him a deal. He probably didn't feel comfortable getting a deal knowing he'd be rehabbing all year. And what was that going to look like afterwards? And maybe this is the end of his career. We certainly hope not. We all love Brandon Woodruff, and I hope he has a great career somewhere. And maybe at some point down the road as he's rehabbing and getting healthier, maybe there is a reunion that could happen there. I don't think it's likely, but perhaps. We all wish him nothing but the best, but nobody knows with him right now. We are hoping this is not a Jimmy Nelson situation, a freak injury that costs you your career, but we just don't know. That led to them cutting Brandon Woodruff instead of offering him a deal where if they offer him a one-year deal, he just sits out and he collects that paycheck, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind that, but that makes no sense for the franchise. Once you took that part of it out, then it felt like, okay, we're back to square one where it makes the most sense to trade Burns and get whatever you can for him, get the most you can for him in the offseason, trade Adamus and get the most you can for him in the offseason, and start a soft rebuild. That was the path after the Woodruff injury that made the most sense to me and a lot of Brewers fans. Well, as the offseason wore on and nothing really happened and they came to terms on these deals, on these one-year deals, without having to go to arbitration court. I was thinking of the Wapner bone where you got Corbin walking in and Matt Harold walking in. You didn't have to do any of that. You came to terms with Corbin, unlike last year. You came to terms with Adamas. You even came to terms with Devin Williams on a two-year deal that buys him out of the last two years of his ARB deal. Okay, so we made it through the winter meetings, and you've come to terms on these deals. Are these guys going to be on the opening day roster? Are they not going to trade them? Are they just going to see what's going to happen in the first couple months of the season? And if it goes bad, you can still trade them at the deadline. I don't know. It just looked like they were going to be on the team come spring training. Then, last week... You actually make a splash move, and you sign one of those middle-of-the-order bats. You bring in Reese Hoskins, who is coming off of an ACL injury, but whose career numbers are great, an 850 OPS, a guy who should, if he's healthy at AmFam Field, hit you 30-ish home runs, knock in 90 or 100 runs, hit 250, hit 260, and give you that OPS that they've been dying for between 800 and 850. Okay, you didn't trade him. We got through the winter meetings. You came to terms on all these deals. Now you've added a bat are we really going to try to do this where you win 90-plus games again or get around that 90-win mark and fight for a division title or fight for a wild card? At that point last week when they signed Hoskins, it felt very likely they're looking at this as we are going to stay as competitive as we can. And whatever happens after this year is what happens after this year. If it goes poorly, we still have that back door out where we could hit the emergency hatch and still trade these guys and get 50 or 60 cents on the dollar but still get something back. Or if things go well, maybe we add something at the deadline and we do go for it. That's where I thought we were last week. Then Thursday night, news breaks. They trade Corbin Burns to the Baltimore Orioles, which makes sense if you go back to the original thought coming off the season. Well, after the the second thought, after the Woodruff injury, that was the first thought all in. Then the second thought, once you had the Woodruff injury of, okay, it makes the most sense to trade these guys, get as much as you can, and go through a soft rebuild. The Burns trade makes sense in that timeline. It does not make sense to me after the Reese Hoskins signing. I guess I'm not mad about the Reese Hoskins signing. It's not my money. It does give you a middle-of-the-order bat still for whatever iteration of this team we're going to see this year. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me that you go out and spend that kind of money, unless we're talking about like we had on the podcast for Spite, that they thought the Cubs wanted him, and because of the whole council thing, they decided to sign him on a Spite. That's really the only logical explanation right now for the Reese Hoskins signing. It just doesn't make sense to spend money on a bat like that and then go on to trade your ace, your top-of-the-rotation guy. We talked on the Monday podcast or last Friday's podcast after the Hoskins signing of, boy, this doesn't look so bad now. You've got Contreras and Hoskins and Yelly, and you've got a decent middle of the order. 
Jackson Churio figures to be on the opening day roster. Your rotation now is Burns, Peralta, and Wade Miley, and you kind of fill in some spots there toward the end, but overall started to feel pretty good. Now you don't really know what this team looks like and when they get together for spring training in less than two weeks. They get back a left-handed pitcher, D.L. Hall, 25 years old, who, by the way, a couple of different Brewer accounts in the last 10 hours, they found these photos on Instagram from D.L. Hall and Joey Ortiz, the other guy they got back. D.L. Hall is an avid hunter. That will appeal well to the Wisconsin fan base. And I guess Joey Ortiz is a Packer fan. There's all kinds of pictures of him at Lambeau Field. Those are the two names they get back. Joey Ortiz is on the top 100 prospect list. I don't think D.L. Hall is anymore, but he was. And they also get the 34th overall pick in the upcoming draft. That's what they would have gotten or about what they would have gotten if they just would have ridden this season out, see what happens, and then when a player of Corbin's caliber, if they just leave, you get a compensatory pick at the end of that year. We saw that happen with Prince. They got that late first-round pick when they just let Prince walk at the end of 2011. That's what they get back. Two prospects who are major league ready, and you get the 34th pick in the upcoming draft in June. I would have wanted more. I thought they could maybe get more. The Orioles have a very good prospect list, and Ortiz, of the two guys coming back, is the highest prospect they got back. He was number seven in the Orioles system. You would have hoped they would have gotten more, but other teams know what we know, and that is that the Brewers do not have the money to re-sign Corbin Burns. They are not going to re-sign Corbin Burns, so we don't have to offer a boatload. We have to offer enough to pry him loose, but we don't have to overwhelm anybody because their backs are kind of up against it right now. D.L. Hall has great stuff. His stuff as a lefty is plus. The highlights that I've seen, and he had a couple of co- cup of, couple of cups of coffee. Let's try that again. Take two. Couple of cups of coffee at the major league level. And he has pitched 33 innings. He had a 3.2-ish ERA last year out of the bullpen in 19 and a third innings. So he has pitched at the major league level. He came out of the bullpen for them. His delivery, and I hate to throw this out here because it sets the expectation bar wildly out of proportion. His delivery reminds me a lot of Hayter, the way that he delivers the baseball. Now, is his stuff up there when in Hayter's prime in 2017 and 2018? How about the deal he signed, by the way, in Houston? 2017, 2018, 2019, when he's throwing 97, 98 plus, and he's got that vicious slider. I don't know if his stuff ranks that high. Just the way he looks and presents himself on the mound and his throwing motion remind me a lot of Hayter. I've read some Oriole fan pages and blogs. They really like this guy, and they were sad to see him go. Obviously, they are overwhelmingly excited to get a Cy Young Award winner for the top of their rotation, but they were sad to see D.L. Hall go. Whether he profiles as a reliever or a starter, at this point you have to think a starter now with how thin the rotation is. He comes back, he's 25 years old, and then Joey Ortiz, who hit well in the minor leagues. He's not a power guy. He hit 321 in AAA, which is not bad. He had a cup of coffee, did it better that time. With the Orioles this past year, it was only 40-ish at-bats, and he hit 212, so he'll fit right in. Not really known for his bat as he was coming up through the ranks, but again, 321 at AAA. He is a gold glove caliber fielder, though. He is a shortstop by design, but as most baseball fans know, if you have an up-and-coming shortstop, you want them there, but they can play basically anywhere. If you are an elite or a top-tier level shortstop, you can play anywhere. Shortstop, second base, third base, first base, any of the infield spots, you feel comfortable having him there. The acquisition of Ortiz as a natural shortstop makes me think maybe they are still going to try to trade Adamas. And I've seen some rumors on Twitter about that. I don't know if they're from verified accounts. They're not from accounts like Passens or anybody like that. But do you go back now to that? Do you go back to that second storyline of trade Burns, trade Adamas? Are you going to hang on to Adamas? Maybe you trade him at the deadline. Ortiz is a guy, though, if you did now trade Adamas, that you probably could put in at shortstop. Or you move Terang over to shortstop and you can put Ortiz at second base. Right now... If everything is as is, I would bet Terang is second base, Adamas is shortstop, and they'll probably use Ortiz utility and more so on the third base side. Is Monasterio still on the team? I'd have to look. He was kind of a bright light last year. Doesn't hit for a ton of power, but he hit for average, and he was solid defensively. And you could argue he should have been in one of those either game one or two against Arizona as a starter for the lack of offense they had in those games. He seems like a guy you could throw at third base. Tyler Black is their up-and-coming third baseman. I'm not sure if he is opening day ready. So it feels likely that Ortiz will start the year on the Major League roster. You can use him in a variety of spots, and maybe he sees a lot of playing time at third base because you still do have that hole there. You get those two guys back and that pick, and that is the return on Corbin Burns. And that closes the book on an era for Brewer Baseball. I had a text on the B93 Morning Show say that they couldn't believe 
They had all these good young pitchers. And ultimately, if you're – if your sense of winning something is the World Series and that's it, we didn't win anything, then we didn't win anything. And I said, that is true. <laughs> this is the end of an era with the cutting of Woodruff and the trading of Burns. Burns, like Woodruff, burst onto the scene on that 2018 team. Woodruff started in the bullpen that year. Then he began starting toward the end of the year and in the playoffs. Remember, Woodruff was a surprise starter in that 2018 run in game one against Colorado. And then he started in that now famous game against L.A. in the NLCS where not only was he on the mound, but he hit that home run with Kershaw. He was just on the rise. Corbin was out of the bullpen exclusively in 2018, and he was really good out of the bullpen in 2018. He had a 7-0 record and a 2-6-1 ERA. Then remember 2019, they tried to make him a starter, and he just got shelled. He had an 8.82 ERA, a negative 2.3 whip. They had to send or a negative 2.3 war. They had to send him back down. Then they brought him back up, got shelled again. Then they sent him back down. Then they tried him in the bullpen again. And it didn't look like he was going to pan out. In the offseason between 2019 and 2020, he's able to develop that cutter that became his bread and butter. And he was able to lean on that. He was the starter again in 2020. We were all skeptical because of how bad he looked in 2019. And then he just was awesome in the shortened year of 2020. 4-1 record, a 2.11 ERA. Has the Cy Young year in 2021, a 2.43 ERA, 234 strikeouts. He was a part of the second no-hitter in franchise history combined with Josh Hader. He had a good start against Atlanta in that 2021 playoff run. 2022, he dipped a bit. 2.94 2.94 ERA, 12 and 8 record, and last year a 10 and 8 record and a 3.39 ERA. I've read some Brewer takes of, well, he seems to be getting a little bit worse every year. If you go by the ERA, 2020 was a 2.11, 2021 was a 2.43, 2022 was a 2.94, and 2023 is a 3.39. There are some Brewers fans that have the take of, you're selling still kind of high here when it seems like he might be on the decline a bit. He's not even 30 years old, though. It does close the book on this era of the Burns and Woodruff and Peralta. Peralta's still here, but that trio as the one, two, three of the rotation, it does close the book on that. And yeah, if you are looking at a World Series or bust, it is sad. It makes me very sad to think they didn't win anything in that era. It is, to me, the opposite of the problem they had, and we've been over this, with the Prince, Braun, Corey Hart era of 2009, 2010, and I guess 2011, after they had to go and get Grinky to solve the pitching problem. But you think of those two years. You broke the playoff drought in 2008. And then you bring in Maka in 2009 and 2010. To me, those are the lost years of that team where they won around 80 games. They had this elite offense just mashing home runs, pounding taters. That sounded weird. <laughs> we'll take that out maybe. But you had this team that could score, it felt like, eight or nine runs a game, but you had no pitching. You had Giovanni Gallardo, that was it, and he wasn't even really an ace. He was the de facto ace because he had to be, but he was really a 2-3 even though he had an excellent career. He was the only guy, and you try to supplement that with Randy Wolf and Braden Looper, and that didn't work, and then they had to make the big splash move to acquire Grinky and Markham in the 2011 season to rectify that problem. But those two years of prime Fielder and Braun in the middle of that lineup are completely lost years. Kind of feels like that way in the reverse with this era. You have the homegrown pitching that you would have loved to have on that 2009, 2010, 2011 team. You finally develop pitchers in your system, Burns and Woodruff. Peralta they acquired, I think, in the Adam Lind deal. That's where they got Peralta. He's 19 years old. He was a lottery ticket, but it worked out. Even though they didn't draft him, when you get somebody at 19 years old as a trade acquisition, I count that as homegrown. You had these three stud homegrown pitchers that all were in the running for a Cy Young Award in 2021 and were very good starters in 2020, 21, 22, and 23. And you had some injuries in there, of course, but you have these great starting pitching that you grew and you just didn't have the offense. You couldn't get the offense together. It's one of those things where as a small market team and being the fan of a small market team, you've got to get the right prospects at the right time. It's got to be the perfect storm. You've got to have the perfect balance of offense and pitching, and you've got to have just enough prospects to maybe make a deal at the deadline to put yourself over the top. That is the balancing act that you have to operate on with a salary capless Major League Baseball. It just is a bummer when you think of 10 years ago. Is it more than 10 years ago? Yeah, it's a lot more than 10 years ago, John. 15 or 16 years ago, you had this unbelievable homegrown offense and you didn't have the pitching. And then 15 years later, you have these unbelievable homegrown pitching prospects and you didn't really have the hitting to capitalize on that. You just couldn't get it all timed out correctly. 
Uh, Burns leaves his time in Milwaukee and goes to Baltimore. Great get for Baltimore. They were a 100-win team out of nowhere last year. They got swept in the playoffs by the eventual champion Rangers. But one thing they lacked was starting pitching. They just got a new ownership group, a couple of billionaires taking over in Baltimore, and they immediately make a big splash move. They get the Cy Young Award winner. They'll probably then be able to extend him because they have the money. That's a smart move for Corbin. And they feel like, even though they like D.L. Hall, the Orioles blogs I was reading, they like D.L. Hall and they like Joey Ortiz. Ortiz didn't have a path to the major league level with how good their infield is in Baltimore. I don't know that they're losing any sleep over losing him. They seem sad about Hall, but when you're giving up two prospects, one that you didn't think had a spot on the team anyway, and you give up a draft pick, in a fan's mind, a draft pick is this mythical thing that doesn't even really exist until you get there, and they get a Cy Young Award winner. It's a major get for that Baltimore Oriole organization. Yes, it does end an era of Brewer baseball seeing Corbin Burns get traded to Baltimore yesterday. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. You know, this kind of reminds me of this offseason. You had Craig Council jettison the team and go to their hated rival in Chicago. Then you came to all these ARB deals, and it looked like you were going to carry your final year guys through the year. You sign Reese Hoskins, then you trade Corbin Burns. It reminds me of the Michael Scott, the dinner party episode, the snip, snap, snip, snaps. Snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap. I just I don't know what to make of exactly what they're doing. And Matt Arnold was walking that tightrope as well as he was meeting with reporters following the trade where he said, well, this is what you have to do as a small market team, and we're trying to compete, but we're also trying to look toward the future. They had the big Churio deal too this offseason. It's been a weird offseason. See, your manager, your hometown manager leave for a hated crosstown rival. You trade your ace, your Cy Young Award winner. You sign your top prospect and one of the top prospects in baseball to the richest contract in Major League Baseball history for a guy who hasn't played an inning of Major League Baseball. You sign a legit first baseman. It just, it's just weird. I mean, what, are, what is the expectation coming into this year? The rotation looks rough now, though. You've got Freddie Peralta at the top of it. You've got Wade Miley, if he can stay healthy, as your number two, which is never a given. And then... I don't know, Colin Ray. Colin Ray, we're, we're going to lean on him as the number three. A guy, a journeyman who filled in last year admirably to a 4.55 ERA over about 30 starts, but not a guy we thought we were going to rely on this year. Now he's your number three. They signed Joe Ross, who hasn't pitched a Major League Baseball in two years. Aaron Ashby coming off of a shoulder injury. He's still progressing slowly. Do you sign someone? Is Robert Gosser the last Part of the hater trade, who is their top AAA pitching prospect. Do you call him up the lefty? Mizorowski is a guy, a blue chip prospect, and so Carlos Rodriguez, too. Are those guys going to make their way up? I don't know. I don't know what the rotation looks like now, but on paper, it is not inspiring after you trade Corbin Burns out of there. Brewers, by the way, did also announce this week before this trade. Do you see the renderings of the new video boards at AmFam Field? They are unbelievably massive. The center field video screen that they're going to install before the season begins, over 12,000 square feet. I said in the blog we wrote about this, God, I just want to hook up N64 and put some golden eye on there. Just sit at second base, get a couple of sofas set up, or go sit in Bernie Chalet, get everything set up for N64 and get it going on a 12,000-foot screen. And then they're adding a screen to the right field side that's over 3,000 square feet, which I think is the current size of the scoreboard. The right field one by the Johnsonville area will be a part of that, too. So they're going to have two video boards, 12,000 square feet in center field, 3,000 square feet in right field. It should be cool. Can I give you an old man take for a second? Can we be an old man for a second? Old man yells at cloud. This is another segment of old man yells at cloud. There is a part of me when I saw these renderings. I did think they looked cool, but there's an old man part of me that thought, what do we need this for? It's baseball. I want to go to a baseball game and just sit and listen to the sounds of the game and the pounding of the cleats and the smack of the bat and the awkward silence with your significant other. <laughs> no, just And just sit there, the art of conversation, and listening to the guy behind you mashing on his peanuts with his mouth open and sipping on my lukewarm $12 beer and reading the paper and getting my stock quotes. Maybe work on that musical I've been meaning to get to. I've got a sitcom I've been working on. Maybe I can do a little writing when I'm there. There is a part of the tradition of baseball, of sitting and talking and just having the game be a setting for that other stuff that's going on, where I think, God, I don't need a giant video board and I don't need house music pumping in every two seconds to keep me entertained. 
There was just a part of me that had that moment as well. Those are set to debut at the beginning of this year also. And we're only 13 days away from right now. Pitchers and catchers report at Maryville. My wife and I are going to be there three weeks from today. We will be on a flight to Phoenix for a week of spring training baseball. That was obviously a big story yesterday. Let's talk about the hiring of the defensive coordinator for the Green Bay Packers. They bring in Jeff Halfley. And a lot of Packer Twitter, and I'm going to admit, I also reacted this way. I never heard of Jeff Halfley before, and this to me was the reaction of a lot of Packer fans in the immediacy of that hiring on Wednesday. I can already tell that I don't like you. And I'm probably not going to like you, no matter how many pull-ups or push-ups you do. It was it was a negative reaction. I said in the blog I wrote about it, I was actually driving down to Milwaukee to call a college basketball game, and I heard the radio. Hey, the radio broke news to me. What year is it? Back to the old man take. And I was listening to ESPN Milwaukee, and they break in and say the Packers have made their hire. I thought, oh, my God, I've been reading all about the different defensive coordinators they've been interviewing, and are they going to make a big splash? Is Jimmy Leonard still in play? Just a name. I'm expecting a name that I've heard in the last two weeks. And then I hear Jeff Halfley, and I say, who? And the host, who rhymes with Homer, said that he is the, or now is the former, Boston College head coach. He was the head coach at BC for four years, and he went a gentleman's 22 and 26 during his time at Boston College. So the first two things I know about Jeff Halfley are, I don't know who he is, and he didn't have a great record in four years at BC. And I'm thinking, Matt LaFleur, is this Joe Barry all over again? I had the same feelings I had when they hired Joe Barry. This is the guy? This is the guy? And by the time I got to the parking lot of the game I was calling, there was a good 15, 20 minutes in there, and I had a real hate fire for Jeff Halfley Brewing. But as it turns out, you can't judge an entire man's character or resume in 15 minutes knowing nothing about him. As I was able to scroll through social media a little bit and read more about him and his defensive philosophies and the fact that he was a co-defensive coordinator at Ohio State in 2019 – And during his time at Ohio State, they had the best defense in college football. They were loaded with talent, but that happens every year, and they're not number one every year. And then I read more about the schemes that he plans to implement, it sounds like, in Green Bay, things that he has been doing his entire career. He, the opposite of Joe Barry, will have four hands on the ground, four men down on a lot of rushing plays. He will play a lot of press coverage. Well, that immediately won me over. We were all year agonizing over these soft, these 10-ply zone defenses where on third and seven, we had corners and safeties 15 yards off of their wide receivers. And in sitting in that bend and don't break philosophy where you're willing to let a team have a nine or 10 play drive as long as it ends in a field goal or maybe you get a turnover or they make a mistake. But you would sit in that soft zone and not blitz. That will seem to be the two hallmarks of Joe Barry. The hallmarks of Jeff Halfley seem to be the opposite of that. So if you are somebody that really disliked the Joe Barry scheme and got very tired of it by the end of the year and you were saying to yourself as you were crumbling up your cheese head at the end of a Packer loss or a poor defensive performance and you said they need to get somebody the opposite of of, of Jeff Halfley. (laughs) Not yet. Maybe that's in two years. That could be episode 210 of Strange Brew. They need to get somebody the opposite of Joe Barry. Just anybody. Anybody who will bring a blitz. Anybody who will play press man coverage. Well, I've got good news for you. Jeff Halfley is anybody. He fits that mold perfectly. He also has experience coaching defensive backs at the NFL level. I know that was maybe a concern for some people when you heard of all the college exploits. You think, well, how is that going to play at the NFL level? He spent some time coaching defensive backs, most notably in San Francisco after Chip Kelly was fired. He was on the Chip Kelly staff. Remember when Chip Kelly was coaching in the NFL? I forgot totally about that. And then Kyle Shanahan, the current Niners coach, took over. The one coach that he kept on his defensive staff from the Chip Kelly era in San Francisco was Jeff Halfley. And like it or not, I know we don't like Richard Sherman in these parts. Richard Sherman is probably a top two or three corner in NFL history in the last 20 years. And here is what Richard Sherman had to say about Jeff Halfley. Going back to Halfley, now you had a full season to work with him, get to know him, how he operates. Uh, what has impressed you uh, about him? His preparation is, is, is some of the best I've seen. You know, I've had some great defensive back coaches, some great defensive coaches, defensive minds, um, and he's right up there. He's with his preparation and how he breaks down film and how easy and simple he makes the game plan sound and how easy he makes it for guys to understand. Like, he paints a, a very vivid picture of, of what you're going to see, and, and it's all about executing. Like, I've, 
I've tried to explain to you guys over and over, like they, they give us the plays a lot of times. A lot of times they prepare us really well. And so that speaks back. well to Jeff Hafley. And, and Sherman's not the only one. When you start to dig into this and find quotes from former co-workers, former coaches on teams he's also been a part of, and other players that he's coached, college and pro, they all speak very highly of Jeff Hafley. I did in the blog have to talk about how Jeff Hafley basically looks like Matt LaFleur. They both have the same haircut. They both have the same vest game. I used the Spider-Man pointing at each other meme in the blog. We wrote about it in the middle of the week or on Thursday. And then I also included an audio clip. Let's see if I can get to it. I don't even know if I can get to it in time. I didn't have enough windows up here. There was an interview with him right when he took the job at Boston College. And it's about a 20-second clip. And not only does he look and dress exactly like Matt LaFleur. He also sounds exactly like Matt LaFleur here. Let's see if I can get it loaded up here. As soon as I saw the audio, and it's not just the way he sounds. It's his, the way he speaks, the tenor in which he delivers this, it sounds. Um, and I've always saw that recruiting. You know, there are certain kids I could never get in on because they were BC kids. They wanted to they wanted to go to BC. Families wanted to go to BC. And I could never get in on those kids no matter where I was. So to me, that's exciting. And we need to find more kids like that. And there's a lot of places like that. So I think it's an awesome opportunity. That is Matt LaFleur. He hired himself. He looked in a mirror and said, look at that good-looking guy. I got a good guy like that. And he hired Jeff Halfley. He is the new defensive coordinator in Green Bay. And, you know, we reserve judgment until we see how it looks. And there are going to be roster changes. We'll talk a little bit about the Goody press conference on Thursday. What today day is today? Friday? So Thursday afternoon, Goody did his season-ending press conference. And he hit on a couple of those things in terms of roster and specifically in terms of the defensive roster. We'll see what this looks like, though, come the 2024-25 season. I did put in the blog, and you know this is true. We ironically were talking about Fire Halfley. Hashtag Fire Halfley. Fire Dom, Fire Petten, Fire Barry, Fire Halfley. That does have a certain ring to it, Fire Halfley. But there will be Packer fans. There will be Midwest dads as far as the eye can see. When the Packers play in week one, I don't even know who they play. I don't even think the schedule's out yet. Whoever they play in week one, if that team goes right down the field on their opening drive and scores a touchdown, unironically, there will be hashtag fire Halfleys as far as the eye can see. If they're down 14 nothing in the first quarter, hire Joe, hire Barry. Hashtag hire Barry. Bring Barry back. Jeff Hapley, the new defensive coordinator in Green Bay. Let's hope it does look different. Let's hope we see blitzes. Let's see. We hope we, hope we see more press man coverage, which you should with a guy the caliber of Jair Alexander. And we just you, you hope to see the changes from the last scheme to this scheme that are going to make this defense a top 15, top 10 defense. I hesitate to say we're already at the stage we were with Aaron Rodgers and the prime of Rodgers and that offense where it felt like we were always saying, God, if we could only get a top 10 defense. And not even a top 10, just give me a top 15. If we could get the number 13 defense in the NFL in 2015 with Aaron Rodgers and the weapons they had offensively and how locked in he was as an MVP candidate, we felt like we could win a bunch of Super Bowls. We talked about that a few podcasts ago. Tom Brady is the undisputed GOAT, but I would say if you give Rodgers over the 10-year run from 2011 to 2021 or 2022 – If you give him some of the top 10, top 5, top 3, number 1 defenses that Brady had in New England, I bet Rodgers has another ring, right? One, maybe two. He probably is able to at least get back to the Super Bowl. We don't know what everything is going to look like this upcoming year. You love the way Jordan Love looked at the end of the year and that 10-game run he had at the end of the year and the way the offense seems to be developing and the young wide receivers – Our hope and expectation is that that's going to continue and they're going to be a team that can score 25-plus or 30-ish points a game. We have to see that happen now for a second year before you can bank on it, but it does feel like we're going to be at that stage in the next year or two, and hopefully it is this year, where your offense is scoring, and if you can just get this defense to be competent, to be a top 15, top 12 defense, you should be in a spot where you can make a deep run and get to an NFC Championship game or maybe get to a Super Bowl in the next year or two. But Jeff Hafley, that was big news on Wednesday night. Yeah, Goody had his press conference yesterday, and he hit on a few things, including the defensive roster. He did say they are going to be looking for safety, whether that be through free agency or whether that be through the draft. That is going to be a need. They talked about that. He did mention Aaron Jones and said Aaron Jones is not going anywhere. They just they asked him, is Aaron Jones going to be a part of this team? Unequivocally, he said yes. They did also ask him about the Jordan Love contract, and they're going to have to extend this offseason. This was Goody a little bit with a wry smile on his face. One of the reporters asked him 
when did you know about Jordan Love? And I think the reporter was hinting at at what point in this year, in the middle of this year, did you realize that Jordan Love is the guy? And Goody kind of gave one to him with a smirk on his face. When did you know Jordan was the guy? Because you come into the season right, and okay, what's going to happen? 2019, you know. No. Um. <laughs> he knew in 2019. When did I know that I was going to be the genius that drafted Jordan Love? 2019. Talked a little bit about the structure of that contract and what it's going to take to get Love locked up. Coming out of that press conference, it did feel as though, yes, Jordan Love will get the extension. I don't know if there's any question about that. But it does also sound like they're going to find a way to restructure or just bring back Aaron Jones. And we saw the difference that made at the end of the year on that four or five week run or six week run in a row toward the end of the year where he was such an added element to that offense. Those were kind of the notes from the Goody press conference on Friday. He obviously was feeling great and feeling himself, and he should with the way the youngest roster in the league made the playoffs, won a playoff game, should have been in the NFC Championship game. He should be feeling good about that. And if he can put together another draft like the last two this upcoming April with all of the picks they have in the top 100, they're really going to be cooking with gas in Green Bay. He was feeling good. Goody, feel, he was feeling goody, if you will. This is a free podcast. I want to remind you that. It's at this juncture. I'd like to remind you this is free content. Oh, he should be. He has every right to be Ric Flair wooing and strutting a little bit and peacocking a little bit after the year that his team put together and trading Aaron Rodgers and finally jettisoning himself of that and that relationship. And then he was right about the quarterback and all these young wide receivers. He should have been feeling good on Friday, and he was. That was all big Packer news this week. What's next on the rundown list here? Oh, college hoops. Just a bummer for the Badgers. But I will say this. Before the Nebraska game last night, I read an article as we turn the calendar to February that talked about if the Badgers can beat Nebraska, which now we know they didn't, but if they can beat Nebraska and they beat Purdue on Sunday, this writer was talking about, I think it was Rothstein, was talking about how the Badgers on that next bracketology then on Monday or Tuesday probably were going to be a one seed. Just reading that article and knowing we're a month away and hearing Badgers and one seed and getting excited about March Madness, it just made me feel like we've got to play a little bit of this today. Because it's starting to feel that way, baby. We're getting close. This just gets me jacked up. We're, what, six weeks away-ish? I can feel myself losing bets. I can feel myself making bets that I think there's no way this loses. And then six minutes into game one, John, you idiot. But just reading that article and having bigger games now coming up, like the Nebraska game last night and the Purdue game coming up on Sunday, it got me in that March Madness feel. Yeah, Nebraska, that was a bummer. They lost They lost last year at Nebraska when they had a 17-point lead, and this year's version of the Badgers said, hold my beer. We'll lose with a 19-point lead this time around. Now, going into the game, Nebraska's a good team. They were 15-5, and 5-5 and in the Big Ten, had not lost a conference game at home, and that's where the game was last night, top half of the Big Ten standings. I talked on the morning show on Wednesday then, or maybe it was Thursday morning, about how you have to avoid the trap. And we talked about it on the podcast too, but my feeling was with a veteran team, and this is a very veteran team, they were not going to fall into the trap against a good Nebraska team. And a trap game is more where you take on a team that's 8-12 and 12 or something like that on the road before you take on the number two team in the country at your place as the featured game on national TV. Nebraska is a good team. So I don't know if you could even really qualify it in that Admiral Akbar. it's a trap range. And I don't think it ended up being that way. A trap game is where you play a bad team and you just get down early and you don't look like you have it. The Badgers, for 30 minutes last night or 35 minutes, looked like they had that one, had a 19-point lead, had a 16-point halftime lead. And then in college basketball, teams make runs, especially home teams. Badgers couldn't find the range. Nebraska got hot. The crowd got into it. That is a loud arena when it's full the way it was last night. You feel this momentum working against you if you're the team, letting the lead slip through your fingers. Slowly but surely, Nebraska got back into the game. They tied the game. But then Max Klesman hits a couple of threes. They're back up by six. Klesman did three big threes late in that game. You're back up by six, five minutes to go. Again, Nebraska gets back into it. They get the game tied. They get the lead with under 15 seconds left, but A.J. Storr hits the runner in the lane to get the game to overtime. It's just tough, I think, when you're on the road going to overtime and you have this lead evaporate on you to recalibrate and lock back in. Nebraska pretty much took control right from the beginning of overtime, and they end up getting the win last night. Was it 70-62? to I saw some folks on Twitter not happy with Greg Gard. That guy can't do anything right. He just he can't win the fan base over. I think most of the fan base 
There are parts of the fan base he's just never going to win over. It's like Packer defensive coordinators, like we were just talking about. There is a certain part of Packer fandom that will not be happy with any defensive coordinator unless they can find a way to reanimate Fritz Schirmer. There is a part of the Badger fan base that, for whatever reason, felt like they needed to go with a splashier hire after Bo Ryan, and they just didn't like Greg Gard from the beginning. And even though he's won two Big Ten titles in the last four years, and he's got this team at number six in the country, and he's got college basketball writers talking about them as a potential number one seed, there's just this part of Badger fandom that do not seem to like Greg Gard. And that part was out in force last night, even though they're the number six team in the country and were the in first place in the Big Ten. Now they're a half game back of Purdue. Purdue's nine and two. Badgers are eight and two. I saw a bunch of people on Twitter saying, well, this team's cooked. <laughs> Season's over. Wrap it up. Just classic guard. Forget about it. They're going to be one and done in the tournament again. Just these crazy leaps after a tough loss in overtime on the road against a good team. I saw some folks upset with guard in general, but specifically about Connor Asijan. Maybe when they needed a spark, do you bring Asijan in as bad as he is defensively? Could he have hit a shot? He only played four minutes last night. I don't know. I don't know if Asijan plays 10 minutes or 12 minutes. Does that mean you're going to win the game? I, I don't really know. Maybe he does hit a big shot, and that's all you needed. If you, somebody hits one big three late, maybe that's all you needed. They end up losing. It's fine. They're going to be fine. Now you do have the showdown with Purdue. Noon tip time. You're going to get that March Madness theme. And it's going to be on national TV, CBS. If you win that one and you're able to overcome the seven foot four monstrosity, Zach Eady, if you win that, I don't think they'll fall in the top 25. If they lose on Sunday, they're probably going to fall to 10 or maybe just a little bit on the outside of the top 10 again. If they win on Sunday, I think they probably stay six. They might move to five. Remember what we talked about on the Monday podcast? There are a couple of top five teams that already lost this week. So if you're able to beat Purdue, I don't think you move. And if you do move, you probably move up one spot to number five. If they lose on Sunday, they go 0-2 on the week. They're probably going to be 10 or 11 coming out of the rankings on Monday afternoon or Tuesday. That's the next matchup, though. And this is a big one if they're targeting the number one seed come Big Ten tournament time. If you can get this one, obviously you have a good shot at being in that spot toward the end of the year. If you lose this one, you're a game and a half back, and it's going to be a little more difficult to overcome. That is a noon tip time on Sunday on CBS. Meanwhile, Marquette got a win at Nova without Cam Jones, third leading scorer, arguably your best shooter. And it's always tough in college basketball. They beat Villanova at home. And again, this is not the Villanova of five or six years ago, but they beat Villanova at home. Then it's always tough when you do that to go to that other team's place then later in the year. That's an edge a lot of gamblers look for. If you have two somewhat evenly matched teams, and Marquette's a better team than Villanova, but if, if they're reasonably close and you're looking at playing a bet on a certain night, like I would see, okay, Marquette's at Villanova. Did they play early this year? Oh, they did. They played in Milwaukee, and Marquette beat them. I feel like seven times out of ten or eight times out of ten, the team then that is home for the second matchup that lost on the road in the first matchup, they get a win or get a cover. And I think Marquette was favored by three or four points in that game against Nova, but they win. They hang on to win. Kolek had a huge game, 32 points. They have won five in a row, the number nine team in the country. They are on the road at Georgetown, a bad Georgetown team that Ed Cooley is trying to turn around. I think Georgetown is 1-8 and eight in the Big East, and right now Marquette two games back of the number one team in the country, UConn. UConn 9-1 and one, and Marquette 7-3 and three in the Big East standings. They are at Georgetown on Saturday, and then I think they've got that UConn matchup on the horizon not too far out. We are getting close to March Madness, everybody. But it was a disappointing game for Bucky last night. When you have the lead for that long and it looks like you're in control, to have it slip away is tough. See if they can get a bounce back on Sunday. And we'll wrap up on the Bucks. I'm not sure how much time we need to really spend on this. They lost in the Dame return to Portland. They lost at Denver on Monday, although looked to me pretty good against Denver on Monday. They had Doc at the end of that game talking about their defense. They held Denver, the reigning champs with the reigning MVP, to 113 points as we've been over. That doesn't sound like a great defensive effort, but in the modern NBA, that is a pretty good defensive effort holding a team of that caliber at their place to 113. You'll win a lot of games with Dame and Giannis and Middleton offensively if you're holding a team to 113 points. And Doc said after his debut on Monday in the postgame presser that whoever told these guys they can't defend lied to them. Uh, is anyone who told you you couldn't play defense lie? Uh, you proved that tonight. Uh, you competed tonight. And, and, you know, they got 15 points of our turnovers. If you take that away, 
our half court defense was excellent when we fought tonight. Uh, I do love the doc post game and pre games. It's just he's such a pro. He has a calming influence when you just hear the way he talks and how loose he is with the media because he was a media member too. They lose that game 113-107. As I said on the air on the B93 Morning Show on Tuesday morning, I don't feel terrible about that loss. Given how good they look defensively, they'll get the offense together. That's not a concern for me. Feel pretty good. And they had their chances to pull even or get ahead of Denver late in that game. Just couldn't quite hit a shot. I don't feel as good coming out of Wednesday's game. It was the Dame return in Portland. They did the whole video thing, standing ovation as he came back to Portland for the first time after leaving after 10 years. All-time leading scorer, every record in the book. They did all that pomp and circumstance for Dame, as you would expect they would. And then the Bucks were just listless in the first half. And maybe a part of this is Portland with Dame coming back, a young Trailblazers team saying, all right, we'll, we'll, they're going to make this night about Dame. Let's get a win. Let's beat Dame here on his former floor. There could have been a little bit of that going on. But Portland's a 14-win team. This is a game you had to get, and they didn't get it. And the end of the game was infuriating where they had the Giannis dunk with 35 seconds left that gave them a one-point lead. Then Anthony Simons, who is their new go-to, hits a runner in the lane. Not bad defense. That put Portland back up by one. And then the Bucks had two chances and just could not execute. Brooke took an ill-advised three when Dame was kind of open next to him. The storybook was right there, Brooke. You had the guy coming back to his old place. He had a shot to maybe win the game. And then Brooke Lopez said it's Brooke Lopez time. Brooke Lopez. That's <laughs> it. And he took a three and missed it. And then at the very end, down by three... They inbound the ball to Giannis. It just doesn't make any sense. You know they're going to foul Giannis. There's a chance they were going to foul anybody up by three with less than five seconds left. Bucks had to go full court. Now, remember in the Sacramento game where we got our first Dame time and he hit that three to beat Sacramento? That was a two-point game. So you knew Sacramento was not going to foul in a two-point game and risk the game being tied. Why they ran the same play down three is mystifying to me because on that play, Dame is the inbounder. And what would you rather have? Would you rather have a guy who's known in his history to knock down big threes late in games taking a shot? Or would you rather just foul whoever it is that he inbounds to because you're up by three? If you're down by or if you're up by two or down by two, it makes a lot more sense. When you're down by three and then you inbound to the worst free throw shooter on the floor, of course they're going to foul him. And he misses two free throws. They can't get a shot off at the end and they lose 119 to 116. That's a bad loss. That's a bad loss to a 14 win last place team. And that's a game on this five-game road trip you felt like you had to have, or at least when you entered this road trip, you thought, all right, Denver's going to be tough. You should beat Portland. Dallas will be tough. You could, should beat Utah, and Phoenix will be really tough. To lose the most winnable game in that five-game stretch, not ideal. Bucks are 0-2 in Doc's first two games. This is going to take time, just like we said at the beginning of the season with Adrian Griffin. We're basically hitting the reset button here. All of that stuff we were saying in October and November is Kind of true now, too, where you're implementing this whole new system and a new coaching staff. It is going to take some time. You would hope they'd be able to beat a 14-win team, though, even when you're learning kind of on the fly. They are in Dallas taking on Luka and Kyrie and the Mavericks on Saturday night, 7.30 tip time. Then they are in Utah for a rematch with the Jazz, 7 o'clock tip time. And they wrap up this trip on national TV taking on the Red Hot Suns with Beal and Booker and Durant now all healthy. They're clicking in. That'll be 9 o'clock on TNT on Tuesday. And then you come home and take on the number two team right now in the West, Minnesota. Like we said on the Monday podcast, this schedule is unrelenting the rest of the way. That's what makes a loss to a 14-win Portland team even more annoying. We'll see if they can bounce back at Dallas on Saturday. That'll do it for us here on your Friday morning. We'll get back after it Monday. We'll recap the Bucks weekend. Recap that big Badger game as well. We'll see if the Brewers make any more moves. I do feel like we're on Willie Adamas alert now until spring training where they could try to swing him before they report to camp in a couple of weeks. And we'll be getting set for the Super Bowl. We'll be getting set for the Super Bowl. Friday next week will be our big picks podcast where we do all the prop bets and all that kind of stuff for Chiefs and Niners. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you Monday. 